Stranger Things has been the talk of summer TV. On this week's show, breakout star and cult favorite Shannon Purser and veteran prop master Linda Reese transports us right back to 1983. This is Pop Culture Confidential. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling-Biro. Before we start this show, I'd like to thank everyone for the incredible feedback from last week where we had Ghostbusters director Paul Feig. Thanks so much for the great response, everyone. This week, we have two great guests from another very talked about summer pop culture phenomenon that I must admit is one of my favorite shows of the summer, Netflix Stranger Things. A quick heads up, there are some spoilers throughout the show, so if you're not into that, go check out Stranger Things. It's streaming in its entirety on Netflix, and then listen in. Stranger Things is an eight-part Netflix series starring the likes of Winona Ryder and Matthew Modine, but mostly centers on a group of 12-year-olds and a supporting group of teenagers played by a bunch of young new actors who are absolutely superb. It's created by the Duffer Brothers, who are relatively new to the scene, whose prior work includes the series Wayward Pines. It follows the disappearance of a young boy in small-town Indiana in 1983, and the show uncovers a dark conspiracy and a scary monster along the way. The other star of the show is 1980s American pop culture. The movies, the clothes, the quirks. Stranger Things has its DNA from Stephen King, Spielberg, Carpenter, and of course John Hughes. Everything from the title credits and music to the incredible attention to detail in props and clothes pays loving homage to films like E.T., The Goonies, Firestarter, Poltergeist, Pretty in Pink, and so much more. For many of us that grew up watching these films, this series is like getting to relive a summer day at the movies in the mid-80s, just one more time, but with a new story and outlook. Will is, is missing. I don't know where he is. 99 out of 100 times, kid goes missing. The kid is with a parent or a relative. What about the other time? What? You said 99 out of 100. What about the other time? The one. The one. Wow! Wow! Guys, I really think we should turn back. Did you guys hear that? <laughs> That's not Will. You're in trouble, aren't you? We've sealed off this area. This is where it came from? Yes. And the girl? She can't have gone far. Find her. Do you really think it was a coincidence that we found her? The same place where Will disappeared? Something is going on here! What the hell? She knows about Will! Is there any way that you could reach him? Yes. Later on the show, I talk to veteran prop master Linda Reese, and it's one of the most fun, detailed film fact talks I've ever had. She worked on American Beauty, she did the incredibly elaborate prop work on True Detective, and now she's opened a veritable time capsule to the 80s and brought back everything from trapper keepers to banana seats and BMX bikes. But first... 
Stranger Things is the first role ever for 19-year-old Shannon Purser, and she could never have imagined that her role as Barb would create what's being called Barb Mania, one of the absolute fan favorites from the show. Barb is the doomed best friend of popular teen Nancy Wheeler. Barb is nerdy, confident, underestimated. She's the champion of all of those in high school who go pretty much unseen. Her character is so relatable to many that it started a phenomenon. Barb means fan art, even painted murals, loads of tweets and hashtags like we are all Barb. I'm so thrilled that Shannon Purser had the time to talk to me during Barb Mania from her hometown in Atlanta. Miss Purser, thank you so much for being here. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I I love the show and I love this whole experience and I'm so happy to get to talk about it. Congratulations. Now, this is your first role and you have made a big impression. How has the so-called Barb Mania been for you? It's been incredible. Um I definitely was not expecting all this attention to Barb. I thought she was a great character, and I had a lot of fun playing her. Um, and, you know, a few days after it aired, I started getting all these tweets and Instagram messages, and it was very surreal and unexpected. But it's been incredible to see how people have really connected with her. Uh, what are the, some of the things the fans have been doing? Um, I think one of the major things that I've noticed is, like, all the fan art that people have made for Barb. Um I know that there's one that I've seen where they painted, or it looks like they painted um, like a memorial to her on a wall or, um, you know, drawings and edits. And I've, I've loved all of that because I'm an artist too. So I really, I really appreciate people using their creativity to kind of pay tribute to the show. Mm-hmm. Now, when, when you got on the show, how was Barb described in the Duffer script when you got it? I think, I don't remember the exact words, but something to the degree of, you know, the kind of nerdy sort of best friend um, wants to take care of her friend and that kind of thing, you know. Um, There really wasn't a whole lot in terms of writing to go with. Um, It was more that I was just directed as we went along. There's something wonderfully rebellious about her, even though she's sort of a nerdy character, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I think one of the reasons that I love her so much uh, is that she's so unapologetic of who she is. You know, she doesn't care that she's at a party with the two most popular boys in school. Um, she just wants to go home, <laughs> uh, and she's only she's only there for her friend. Um, but yeah, I, I love that she's so independent. As with many fans, I can relate to that. <laughs> I just wanted to go. Oh, home. yeah, me too. Absolutely. So you just graduated from high school, I understand. And now you've learned a bit about the 80s. What's the biggest difference for Barb in high school in the 80s as you think it would be for Barb in high school 2016? I think one of the things that I found the most interesting was that even though uh, the show does take place in another decade, it felt, it felt very... Uh, real and very similar to my experiences now or, you know, just to the common teenage experience, yeah. And I think maybe the biggest difference is the lack of cell phones, <laughs> to be honest. And hashtags. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of a lot of the problems in the show could have been averted if somebody had just texted somebody else and told them what was happening, you know, right away. Um, and, you know, you didn't really have that luxury back then. And 
I, I kind of like that a lot. I think it sort of allowed people to be creative and how they communicated and how they expressed themselves. And what makes her and the rest of the group so relatable is that one can still see that this is how high school works. These are the cliques. These are the people, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think anybody, you know, if, even if you're in high school now or if you were in high school in the 60s, you know, I think people can all kind of relate to that common experience of, you know, trying to make a good group of friends, um, you know, trying to be to be popular or to find a good boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, I think... I think everybody can kind of relate to that. And so I think that's part of what's made it so popular. Right. So um, you're 19, so you were not familiar with the 80s as as we were. But do you have a relationship to the pop culture of the 80s? Did you see the movies before doing this? Oh, yeah. I love love movies and music from the 80s, absolutely. Um, Watched a good bit of John Hughes films. Breakfast Club is one of my favorite movies of all time. and then the music, I know growing up, I listened to 80s music all the time with my dad, you know, Toto, we listened to quite a bit. And um, yeah, I, I've always loved it. And so it was really cool. I mean, even just watching the show uh, with my parents, them talking about things that are familiar or, you know, clothes that they see the characters wearing that they wore when, when back then. And yeah, that was it was really cool to be kind of connected to that. Right. Well, she rem- Barb reminds me a lot of Martha Plimpton in The Goonies, who I loved when I saw The Goonies. <laughs> yes, I've heard that one. <laughs> yeah. So I'm interviewing um, the your show's prop master, Linda Reese, and she's the one who apparently found Barb's glasses. What did you think of her props and looks? Yeah, I, I loved Barb's look from the very beginning. Um, since I had my first wardrobe fitting and we got to try on all these sweaters and pants and shoes and everything. That was, that was amazing. And they definitely had such an eye for accessories and what would look good. And I think, you know, I've gotten a lot of comments from fans about how much they loved Barb's looks. And I love it too, because I felt like she wore, you know, whatever she wanted to wear, didn't really care what other people thought of her. And yeah, I, I loved the glasses. Definitely. I think, that is almost for me kind of when the character like finally clicked into like into place with the glasses. You know, I don't know why, but for some reason it just it just made just made Barb real for me. So I warned the listeners a bit in the beginning about some spoilers. So so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you one that's a bit of a spoiler for any of the of the listeners. Um, you have a very dramatic scene by the pool. You know what I'm talking about? Can you tell me a little bit about filming that scene? Well, I remember the night that we were shooting. It was a very late, long night, um, worked long hours. So it was it was dark, and we had to get the temperature of the pool just right, and um. Yeah, I that scene was so beautifully shot, in my opinion. And then the scene in the pool with the monster, that was definitely, that was probably one of my favorite scenes to shoot. That was actually the last one that I shot. How long did it take, that filming that? I don't remember, maybe maybe seven or eight hours. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was incredible. Uh, Sean Levy actually directed episodes three and four, so he... Um, he was my director for for those scenes, which I loved. He was so great to work with. 
and yeah, it was it was a long day. There was a lot of coughing up baby food and screaming. I remember by the end. That's what you had to spit up, baby? Mm-hmm. Yep, that was it. They would, like, squirt it into my mouth before each take. Um, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't it was the most delicious experience, but, you know, it was, it was totally worth it. We had, we had a really great time and everybody was so helpful and yeah, it, it just, it just flowed so well. I'm super thankful. Not, not everyone. It's not often I get to talk to someone who has their first film credit and such a success right out of the, of the bat. Um, but I can ask people about it later and they can remember what it felt like. Can, do you, can you think you can describe sort of what you're going through right now? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's totally surreal. Um, I mean, I remember from the, I had been auditioning for a few years before I got this part. Um, and this entire experience from the audition itself to the table read to shooting, it was all like, it was all my first time. And so it was incredible not only getting to experience it on a, like a, such a large scale, but also working with these incredibly talented people and kind of being so quickly immersed in this world, you know, of, of acting and performing. And then, you know, afterwards definitely um, wasn't, was not <laughs> expecting all this attention to Barb. You know, I thought a few people might enjoy her character. Um, because, you know, she's only in a few scenes, you know. I didn't expect her to make that big of a splash, but then people really took to her. And so, yeah, all all of this attention is definitely a bit surreal for me, but I'm I'm really glad that people uh, enjoy the character. Are you being offered a lot of new things? I've had some auditions, uh, a few, yeah, and then some some new stuff definitely in terms of representation is in the works right now. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, uh, nothing, nothing too crazy as of yet. You don't know what's next for you. No, nope, not 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 yet. Well, it'll be big things. But finally, um, a lot of us fans are, are upset. Well, I mean, it, it was upset is not maybe not the right word, but of, of Barb's early demise because we loved her so much. <laughs> what do you think? Will she be back? <laughs> uh, I would, I would love to be back. Um, Netflix hasn't really confirmed a, a second season yet, so. Right now, I think we're all kind of just, you know, riding the wave of season one and really enjoying um, the response from the fans. So, yeah, if if there is a season two, I would I would love to be back. I would love to be Barb again. Um, but yeah, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. And but you think that she, um, there is a possibility that she was just like in a coma. She's not actually dead. <laughs> you know, I mean, her end was <laughs> pretty intense. So. In my in my personal opinion, it probably doesn't look so good, but it is a science fiction, you know, type of show, and you know, anything's possible. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, Shannon, I wish you so much luck, and and again, what a great performance in the show, and thank you so much for taking your time to talk to me over here. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much to Shannon Purser. 
And now, the amount of work, cleverness, research, and perseverance it takes to secure props for the productions that my next guest works on is even more than I could have imagined. I'm honored for the opportunity to talk to veteran prop master Linda Reese, whose credits include Reality Bites, American History X, Cruel Intentions, American Beauty, the TV series True Detective, and now she just transported us directly back to the 1980s with Stranger Things. Oh, and on popcultureconfidential.com, you'll find a whole bunch of pictures from the set of Stranger Things and many of Linda Reese props. Miss Reese, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Happy to be here. In order to get a sense before we get into your to your work of what a prop master does um, for the listeners, would you describe a really important prop in your own 16-year career and why and what makes it stand out? Um, probably the most iconic um, is the white plastic bag in American Beauty. Right. Um, because it became um, more than just a plastic bag, more than just a hand prop that somebody has. It became a, an entire scene in that movie and um, was not something that was easy to come by, funnily enough, and we, we searched high and low. And Why was that? Um, <clears throat> part of it was um, it was a very limited budget, and to buy a plain white plastic bag, you have to buy a 1,000 of them. Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> unprinted, yes. And um, so I couldn't at the, t- at the time justify the expense of going and buying a thousand plastic bags for one plastic bag. So I kept putting it off because it was a, it was a shot that was going to sort of be done at some point. And I was out shopping one day with my assistant and we came back to my house and dropped probably 50 bags on the floor. And sitting in the middle of those was a white plastic bag that came from a store somewhere in my day's shopping and that became the white plastic bag. I have no idea of the store that it came from. <laughs> so it's sort of, it was delivered to me by the prop gods. That's amazing because that bag is really sort of the has sort of symbolic metaphor of the whole movie and of the whole idea of the story. It does. It does. So that was that was quite a big one. <laughs> and what about in cinema history in general? Is there a prop that has inspired your work? Um, there are there are different things. I think. One of the ones that I love is um, Wilson ah, in, the, in, uh, in Castaway mm-hmm. because of the transformation of the prop, and the prop becomes a character. And so there are certain um, certain shows where that is is um, you know that occurs, or the, like you know the Maltese Falcon is the name of, of the course. movie, you know, right. it's the biggest <laughs> prop ever. Um, but generally speaking, you want as many of your props as possible to almost disappear unless they are um, the uh, the MacGuffin, you know, exactly. and the, 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 that lead the story forward. Unless they are a story point, you want your things to disappear and to become part of the environment that your characters live in. Right, right. Well, I want to get into more of your amazing cinematic work, but let's start with the series that everyone's talking about with with Stranger Things. How specific were the creators, the Duffer brothers or the writers in the script of how they wanted to portray the 80s? Were they down to brands and things in the script already? Um, To a certain extent, there were a couple of of, uh, moments where 
uh, they had they had specified things. Um, uh, the Coca Cola can was one because we needed the advert to alert. Spoiler, spoiler, mm-hmm. to alert um, Eleven um, to remind Eleven of that incident oh, right. with the Coke can. Um, <clears throat> and they they had certain posters and things that they had put in, but they did give us. Um, Myself and Jess Royal and Chris Trujillo, the production designer and set decorator, um, a real free hand in bringing, um, items to the table to, to, to layer, to, to create the environment of the eighties. Right. And they were clear that they were doing, uh, not only creating a real sort of eighties environment, but also doing homages to other films. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, in the script, when you read the, 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 the written word, they don't say like E.T. or like Poltergeist, but you read the scenes and you know immediately where, where that homage is. And we straddled a fine line and we knew that at the time that potentially, you know, we could fall on the bad side of, of homage. Um, but thankfully everybody, um, everybody on the show, a crew, um, and the cast was so on their game that we, you know, we were able to create what we created. Right. So how was your research process when you start on a period piece like this? Did you rewatch those movies? Well, I absolutely did. Um, when I got the script and I read the script and, um, the Duffers had created a, um, a teaser reel for our story, mm-hmm. um, cut from uh, pieces of all those movies. Oh, really? Yes, and sent out to, to to department heads who were coming in to the show to give you a little idea of the feel of, of what we were go- what they were going for. And so I went and um, I was actually hired very early on, but then had a like two months until I started. So I immersed myself in watching all those movies and other movies of the eighties, just to get that, that aren't um, referenced at all, just to get a feel again. And I, and I was, you know, 20 in the eighties. So I sort of remember it quite vividly. Um, and, um, yeah, so it was, it was an immersion. Could you say, are you allowed to say about what your budget was on this? Um, it was, it was about 200,000. And is that a reasonable budget for what they were asking you to do? Yeah. I mean, they always, um, they, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's mean. The money is, the money's always an issue because you can always spend more. Right. Of course. And you could always bring, get more things and do more stuff and do more layers. Um, and I feel, I, but I feel that it was a, it was a very fair, um, it was a fair budget to work with and, and production and Netflix and, and the directors were so incredibly supportive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, would work, would work with us if there was issues where, Things came up that um, 
that needed to have more, uh, more, more financial input. So talking a little bit about the props themselves, there's amazing props. There's everything from, you know, the 80s bikes, BMX-type bikes, the trapper keepers at the schools and Dungeons and Dragons. Where did you find all of these things, and did, or did you make them, or both? Both. Um, we, I started with uh, research and purchasing of what I could, uh, of the real true items from that period. And what were some of those? Um, we the, the flashlights, the trapper keepers, um, books, telephones. Um, on the making side, so for instance, with the trapper keepers, we would buy them and then I would buy regular new folders and we would create covers that were similar to the trapper keeper ones and turn a new folder new plastic folder into a trapper keeper for our background mm. because for the school scenes we had 150 kids and you know I wanted and one of the things that that we uh, that I sort of pushed heartily for was generally speaking in the 80s um, kids didn't have backpacks backpacks were a later development um, middle school kids um, like our boys would have uh, just a, a sheet or two of homework paper and all their books and everything stayed at school. Right, in the lockers, right? Yes. So um, that was something that, that I had to sort of keep waving the flag about. But we needed backpacks for our boys for the story. Right, when they were out doing things in the woods. and Right. So we interspersed them here and there. But, but for those big scenes of the school hallways and the kids arriving at school, I wanted to give the feel of, of kids carrying a binder or carrying a folder, or carrying lunch boxes, and not all having backpacks. So those all those those trapper keepers and those binders and those folders needed to look right. So we had to make... We had, I think, 150 plastic bags full of like a trapper keeper and a brown lunch sack or a lunch bag or a girl's purse and, you know, boy's sports bag all ready to hand out every day that we did those school days. Right, right. Well, I, well, I grew up in the States in the 80s. And, and, and one of the things I think I, that really resonated with me was exactly where the lunch food and the lunch trays and the little <laughs> milk. I think that was like exactly the way I remember it, as well as Egos. I remember the the ad, Lego My Ego. Yes. Are those still around or was that something? Oh, yes. Yeah. No, we, we took new ego boxes and covered them with old ego um, graphics uh-huh. but the egos inside were the same i knew okay <laughs> that, that hasn't went, changed we went through a lot of egos on our show <laughs> <laughs> well that's what i can i can imagine well I'm, I'm happy to hear that they're still around for nostalgia purposes <laughs> yes <laughs> so do you use ebay a lot Oh, eBay is a prop master's, like, you know, golden treasure cave. Um, and, yes, I spent a fortune on eBay. And do you sit and wait? Because I have two sons who are very um, retro. They, you know, collect comic books and retro things. and things. So for Christmas, I try to buy things for them on eBay, but I never win. <laughs> There's always someone at the end who outbids me. <laughs> And if you um, and if you really need something, do you have like a special system? Yes, I I generally only look for buy it now. Okay, 
Um, but I also there's a there's another app called Auction Sniper, mm-hmm. and I use that, and that's an that's an automated. That's why you get beat. Oh, good um, tip! Because you it's a you you pay for the service, mm-hmm. but you can put in a series of of uh, bids on on items, and it will bid at the last second. Okay. And you have a an amount that you will bid, you know, and I don't always win because but then it because I didn't want to pay $150 for a $50 item. Mm-hmm. So I put my maximum in and and uh go from there. Right, right. Occasionally you'll get something that that is that I'm desperate for. Um haven't been able to find anywhere else is only an auction and then I have to wait and put it on auction sniper with with a ridiculously high bid okay <laughs> you know like a thousand dollars just to know that whoever else is bidding won't win it right right what was the most difficult prop to get your hands on for this particular show there were a couple there were a couple of things that that we uh, that i spent a long time looking for um one was the uh, the drawings the bore the will's artwork mm-hmm. and um I needed to, we need, it was a story point and we needed to have, um, quite a bit of that artwork, uh, in various places in the boys binders, um, in the house, you see Will drawing. We wanted to, um, I wanted to sort of push that all his drawings included the, the characters that they play in the Dungeons and Dragons, the Will, the wizard, Will the wise and, um, the knight and the dwarf and the, so we wanted all of those things. Mm-hmm. And I start with going to the boys to see if, if uh, they would uh, draw anything. And they did some nice pictures, but weren't at the level that the Duffers wanted. Then I started to search on the internet. Mm-hmm. And um, it sort of went on for several weeks of trying to find something that felt like an 11 or 12-year-old boy had drawn it but also felt ripe for the period. And um, a lot of new Dungeons and Dragons artwork is very kind of either anime or um, or a graphic novel-esque. I see. And it was not right. And then one day, out of the blue, I find a blog. And in this blog was a series of five drawings, and they were perfect. And they were credited... Uh, you know, underneath the picture to um, a Flickr account. And I went to the Flickr account and found this guy, Stefan Sinclair, who is now a video game designer. And they were his drawings of Dungeons and Dragons from the 80s. Oh, wow. When he was like 12 years old. And there were like nearly 100 of them. And they were fantastic. And I went to him and, and approached him. And I did say at that point, you know, we're a television show and we're a new television show. Now, if I said, we're from Stranger Things, everybody would give me everything. I <laughs> you know, uh, a year and a half ago when I would say, uh, we're doing a movie called Stranger Things, people would go, I never heard of it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so he he signed us the you know the rights to use the drawings and they were perfect. We absolutely like that was one of the moments where I sort of 
did a jig of joy around my yeah. office. Because, yeah, they really are. I mean, that's really a plot point too with those drawings. Yes, and, and they were so many and they were so detailed and they were so beautiful and they were so perfect. Um, so that was that was one of the things that that uh, that we searched. I searched a lot for, and the other one was the um, the diving helmet. Oh, for eleven mm-hmm. to try and find something that would work. And there was a lot of questions of whether we would fake the water, CGI the water, or put a put a panel in front with water and not have her in water. Um, whether she, how long she could spend if she was on pressurized air in a in a actual you know sort of diving mask okay. rather mm-hmm. than a helmet, and I found um, a company called Sea Trek, and they had these um, these diving they're not diving masks they're pressurized air helmets, mm-hmm. and they were designed for people to walk through coral reefs, people who didn't go diving, didn't want to snorkel, and you basically, the air's pressured inside, and it's like if you take a cup and you get it right on the water and you push it down oh, right. and the air stays in, and they're very heavy. They weigh like nearly 80 pounds, mm-hmm. those helmets. And um, the, But once you're in the water in them, that you don't feel them. And I had looked everywhere and we found them and they were, when I found them originally, they were white with a clear face piece. Mm -hmm. And we loved them, but there was a certain sort of softness to the edges, which they had designed to make them look nice for people who were scared of going in the water, but it didn't really lend itself to our horror side you needed something more menacing absolutely and um but anyway we 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 finally decided this was what we were going to use regardless and i was going to try and create something to go over the the softer edges or maybe add some pieces to it to make it look more, more menacing and right at the last minute um uh the company called me and said we are developing a completely clear version of this. Um, and they sent me pictures and it was like, again, a gift from the prop gods. Yeah, that was, the was like, this is exactly what we want because you just really, you see her in this thing, but you don't really see it when it's in the water. You just see this fear in her face and there's a slight distortion around the edge where the, where the front of it, moves so it gives her face this really scary look and um and it's terrifying in yeah, there it's horrifying. <laughs> yeah it's claustrophobic we, for the viewer yeah and 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 millie um we had a training session with millie about two months prior um because if we decided that it wasn't going to work with this helmet we needed to build a different type of set so that she could not be in water and we rented a pool and um, the the trainer came out from Sea Trek with the helmets and we all went in the water and she absolutely loved it. Um, and, uh, and it was great. But we kept saying to her, you know, when you, you know, if there is a problem, you know, that they use the same signals 
um, that you do when you go scuba diving. Right, to get come up again, yeah. Right, and when we, we took her in the pool and then the following day we took her in the tank as a test in the tank and it was it was scary and funny at the same time because she's such a phenomenal actress that she would be in there and she'd be doing the scared face and banging on the window and we're all like, is she really like, you know, is she really drowning or is she okay? And then she, she'd do that and then she'd suddenly stop and start dancing or making goofy faces. And she's just so great. Okay. She's such a great actress. I'm so excited to watch the ascent of that child. Right. Well, talking about the, the, uh, the actors, the, the ones around her age, the older ones, but these kids, um, they had probably maybe not even seen a rotary phone or a record player and all and a, several of the other things from the 80s how how did did you have to explain certain props to them yeah to the the one that was probably the most was the telephone um and in that <laughs> uh, the scene with with um with Jonathan and Joyce when the phone rings and and she hears the noises and drops the phone um and he comes up initially in the rehearsal. He was pressing the push buttons on the phone. And I had to explain that you would press the the receiver handle <laughs> um, to get a line in those days. And uh, But on the whole, the, the, the kids sort of got it. They weren't as completely ignorant of, of what was what. Right. And, uh, and it's interesting. Um, they're quite sort of uh, 80s uh, nostalgia um, interest. You know, they're really interested in, in all of that stuff and they, they just get it. Yeah, I have a 10. I mean, lots of the movies that we watched then, I mean, I'm still showing E.T. and, and spill to my kids. So, I mean, they know about that and 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 but you some of these props you're thinking <laughs> but the phone is hilarious yeah. <laughs> well i'm having i have a really fabulous opportunity to interview shannon purser barb on the show um, oh. so i wanted to ask you if there was any props around her fantastic character um we spent a lot of time finding the glasses i can imagine <laughs> And uh, and finding the right glasses for her, and um, they had to be, uh, you know, the real thing. And then we have to change the lenses and everything. Um, but that and the and the uh, the hang the the rag that she ties around her hand, um, and her swatch watch, and it was fun. I mean, it was fun to sort of create those those characters. I spend a lot of time with the characters prior to meeting the actors. Right. Of because course. I might prep for, you know, eight or nine weeks prior to shooting. So I have an entire relationship with the written character. And then, you know, a couple of weeks before shooting, I will meet the cast character. And, and it takes me a while to actually call them, their real names to me they when i meet them they are bob or hopper or will or you know the it they are those people um and so for bob you know it was definitely i had that little edge like i wanted her to have the latest little girl swatch watch even though she's such a sort of straight-laced 
character that I just we I tried to put in a couple of little things that that made her a little bit more of an edge. Mm. Well, and um, well. it was fun to do the photos with those girls. Um, there's a there's a scene where Eleven is in. Oh um, right, the little the bedroom, the, and she goes through the photo the photo booth shots. Is it? Yeah, there's yeah. the photo booth shot, but there's also a shot that we did for them dressed up as Halloween for Halloween. Right. And uh, and it's really on the day it was really funny because Nancy is in this sort of white leotard and she looks really beautiful and she's sort of like a bunny. But not like a Playboy bunny, but like a bunny bunny. Right, right. And very, very pretty and very cute. And Barb is this bumblebee. So <laughs> this completely goofy, you know, outfit on. And so those those things, you know, we did a lot of those kind of layering of their friendship for those girls. Right. And then when you're ta- talking about this, you realize how much work. I mean, you're not only doing the reg. I mean, the series. You're also doing sort of back you know, background shots of the, with them celebrating Halloween and photos on the walls. And I mean, the job is tremendous. Yeah. There's a lot of, of um, layering and backstory that we do. Um, and so uh, you might see, for instance, when the, the, when Hopper is in the library and they're going through the microfiche. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. That was, um, 12 different newspaper articles and those articles need to be written and then typefaced and printed on newsprint and then sent to one of two companies in the country that still make microfiche to put them on microfiche sheets to send them back. The photos in those had to be done. The characters all had to be um, have seventies, you know, hair and makeup and clothing. And you wrote the articles. Um, actually, um, I didn't. I didn't. I um, I'm really good at a lot of things to do with my props, but writing's not one of them. <laughs> and so uh, I had sent them out to um, a friend of mine who's a writer, and then they were sort of augmented by our one of our writers on the show. Um, and do you have tweet. like people go picking them up and reading them and stopping the computers to read what's on the text and you get feedback like that? Uh, well, that's all. That was my um, argument for having it done right. Was that I said to um, I said to the duffers, it's really important that we do these things correctly because people will stop and look at them and they kind of looked at me and I said I did Cole's like hidden, you know, crazy room and true detective. And I, I yeah, every sto- piece of paper, I have people the- freeze framing, pulling, enlarging, enhancing, looking at every single piece of paper in that room. And every single piece of paper in that room was right. It was every, every word written you could have looked at and it was, and it was pertinent to that case. And so that's, what I tried to do with the newspaper articles to make them um, great. And we did, uh, we did everything and we shot it. And then editing came back uh, at one point for something. And um, they had changed 
Matthew Modine's character's name. And um, it oh, was no. still um, Brenner, but the Christian name had changed. And I had created those articles and finally got everybody to sign off on them. And they had been sent out to be put on the microfiche sheets and the microfiche sheets had been come back and we had them all ready for the scene and we shot the scene and they came back and they said, it's the wrong first name. And I was like, I can't believe that I missed that, that, that I, you know, and I think when you, when you spend a lot of time or a prop creation is very layered um, it's so great to check the box. I think at the point of checking the right, box that it was done was right about the same time that I got notification that, that this character's name had changed. But we always referred to him as Dr. Brenner. We never used his Christian name. So could you still use these? No, we had to, we had to change them all and do it all again. I was, um, I was, you know, um, not particularly uh, happy that day. <laughs> I can imagine. But it's this accuracy that you're talking about that really, you know, in your work that makes it so good. And did you have you heard that Chimino story from the deer hunter that he talks about on the the um, uh, on the DVD? No. Oh, he talks about that. There's the wedding scene in the Deer Hunter, and they filmed it in this village, and they were all the actors and everyone were living there for a while, so they got to know all the people in the village, and 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 uh, Chimino asked them um, for this wedding scene. Can you bring real wedding gifts? What that you would give your own families in this type of tradition, and they wow. all did. So he says that's why it looks so real because they were what they would give each other: heavy thing, you know, heavy presents and and waffle makers and things like right. that. <laughs> oh, that's great! No, it is. There's, uh, I believe that probably sixty percent of what we do as prop people doesn't show up. You don't see it physically on the screen. But you see it in the performances because you're crea creating a real environment for the actors to work in. Right. I saw you talk about in an, in a, in an interview I found about how money, prop money, actually takes a lot more space and weighs a lot more than, <laughs> than, than, than and it, that irritates you. There are people like, oh, there's $2 million in this bag. And you're, <laughs> no, there's not. <laughs> Because I, I've physically lifted the paperweight of $12 million and it's, you can't. <laughs> when, we, when we were doing the scene with the money in True Detective season two, they talk about the guys throwing everything into a couple of duffel bags and running down the hill. And I'm like, that's like grabbing a body <laughs> in a, in a, in a, you know, in a body bag and throwing it over your shoulder and running down the hill. Right. It's a huge amount of paper. And, uh, and it does, and it weighs a ton and, you know, but they always want it to be like hundred dollar bills. I'm like, that's, that's a lot of hundred dollar bills. I'm just saying, <laughs> just saying. Your work on true detective is, is really amazing. I mean, the, the props on that were, as you said, all over the internet and talked about, and I remember the hug mug. <laughs> um, but tell me a little bit about working with Nick Pizzolatto and the sort of the difference between this one and that one. Um, well, they're very different um, uh, genre uh, right off the bat. So because of that, 
um, there's a different intensity. Um, True Detective was uh, both seasons, and especially the first season, thematically really disturbing. So um, you tend to come at it in a, in a from a different angle, whereas Stranger Things, even though it's about a missing child, there's um, a levity in there with the kids, right, and and their relationships, and um, that is a was a different. It just it the, they both had completely different vibes. Um, Nick knows exactly what he wants and how he wants things. Um, and, uh, it's quite specific in the script. Mm-hmm. Uh, season one and season two differed in that season one, we had one director and season two, we had five directors. So in season one, um, a lot of the, the aesthetic creative decisions were made by Carrie with regards to my props, mm-hmm. um, even though, uh, but Nick was involved in all of the show and tells and all of the final decisions. Uh, whereas in season two, um, I pretty much just went to Nick. Right. And, and talked to Nick about everything. Um, but, you know, because as creator and showrunner, uh, he had the overall vision. Um, uh, Stranger Things had a similar feel um, technically uh, with regards to prop choices as season one of True Detective did in that the Duffers were my, you know, final word. Right. And they directed all of the, um, all of the episodes had written them and were the showrunners. So they were the ones, even when, um, uh, even when Sean Levy directed the two episodes, Sean would always say, what do the Duffers want? That feels like a very personal project for them. Yes. And, and as you know, for my purely for my um, sake, having one person or in the case of the Duffers, two people um, be the final word um, makes it so much easier. Oh, that's always nice not to have a committee. Decision. Yeah, mm. you know, and there are, you know, there are times where you prop by committee and there are shows that you work on where, you know, you might get a guest director come in who sort of wants to do things and and you're having to do show and tells that you've done before with the people who make the final decisions uh, and it can get a little frustrating sometimes. Um, but, you know, we smile and bring our props in and do our thing. What was the most difficult prop from season one of, of true detective or, or your most, the the prop you're most proud of being able to get? Um, I think probably the one I'm most proud of is more of the entire set rather than a specific prop because it contained almost all of them, which is the storage locker. Right. Rust Cole's locker. Yeah. Yeah. Where, (laughs) the art department gave me a locker and um and I put everything in it um and every piece of paper and every book and every you know missing wanted piece the the all of that so for me almost as a career piece that was um 
I spent days in there on my own. <laughs> <laughs> That's scary. It was, and it was about 150 degrees and so humid. And I sort of was, uh, you know, I felt like I was in some Second World War, like, you know, prison camp in there with like in the, in the humidity. Right. Um, but I loved that. Uh, what took a lot of time organizing was um, – all of the photos that Cole looks at of all the dead bodies because you can't just go on to Getty or Corbis oh, no. or any stock house and say, Hey, can I get, you know, 150 dead people, please? So we created every single one of those photos. We shot every single one of those photos. Um, we took, uh, actresses and did, you know, um, corpse makeup on them we did autopsy makeup on them we took 12 women out into um, a bayou park in new orleans and uh staged murder scenes in this park and shot them and uh that was you shot the pictures not the women (laughs) yes shot the pictures um and uh and and I had to, it was funny, we shot everything on film. Carrie was quite adamant that 1995 they would have been shooting on film and he wanted the to pictures to be shot on film. And so we shot them all on film and uh, for the final developing, we were going to take them, fly them out to LA to get them really well um, developed and processed. But for the quick developing, we took them into a, a Walgreens Mm-hmm. because they still can can turn them out they print them out digitally and what we didn't want for our final pictures was a digital print but we could they could process the negs for us and they would print out just regular snapshots and i took like 15 rolls of film in there and i had to sort of say to the woman who when i dropped them off i just want you to know here's my business card these are film props we just oh, created God. these things these are not like crazy middle-aged English lady serial killer (laughs) photos. And when I come back, please do not have Nola's finest waiting for me. And she did. She sort of like rolled her eyes because those photos are very graphic. Oh, my God. Very graphic. So do you have a dream project as a prop master? Of one I would love to do? Yeah, or a genre or something that was like, yeah, that's – I really like doing uh, period projects mm-hmm. um, because it's, you know, you can find great research, you can find, um, you know, and it's great to go out and sort of scavenger hunt for the props. Um, I would love to do something um, uh, sort of futuristic um, so that we could create a new world which I think would be really fun. Um, I, my, my least favorite would be to open a script and see it say Los Angeles 2016. Right. Because, you know, I live in that every day and movies and television for me have always been escapism. Right, right. And so I like to be somewhere else. Do you know if there's a Stranger Things continuation coming that you can tell us? I wish I could. I don't know. I'm as much in the dark as everybody else. <laughs> but uh, you, but I am, I'm keeping my fingers crossed, and I'm sure that with 
with the success of season one that 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 there will be a season two. I just um, nothing's been greenlit. I haven't been told anything, um, you know, and I'm just waiting patiently to uh, to hear the word. I'm hoping it's sooner rather than later. And you'll surely be on it. But you have something next coming up next for you that's all set. Uh, right now, I'm spending a lot of time. Um, I have a prop house in um, the UK that specializes in American props for the European and UK market. And so I've been doing a lot of um, prop sourcing uh, for several projects that have been that are shooting in England and uh, the UK right now. So that's keeping me nicely busy. And uh, and then I might take, you know, a month off if we don't, you know, if for some reason we don't come back to like September or October. Very good. And I'm sure you'll have be looking for props on your time off too. <laughs> uh, I There's never a minute when I'm not looking for props. <laughs> Linda, thank you so much. This was so interesting and I so appreciate your time with this. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed that there's a new season. Oh, you're welcome. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed too. And I hope your boys... When they finally see it, love it. Thank you so much to Linda Reese, prop master and owner of Linda's Prop Shop. And thank you once again to Shannon Purser, who plays Barb on Stranger Things. All eight episodes are streaming on Netflix right now. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, intro music by Carl Boy, and produced by Renee Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling Biro. You'll find us on popcultureconfidential.com and at the Twitter handle at podpopculture. Thank you so much. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) I know, right?